Walking Each Other Home is an exploration of the many ways we cultivate wisdom, compassion, and love in our lives. Mirabai Bush talks with some of her many diverse friends about what they're learning now from their spiritual paths and practices. If you would like to support this podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Mirabai. Hi, everyone. This is Mirabai and Walking Each Other Home. This is, uh, Walking Each Other Home is um, all the disparate uh, conversations on this channel are held together by the idea that um, we are all walking our own paths, each unique, um, but we really can help each other. In fact, we need each other. In fact, we are not separate from each other. I know Bill said something about, um, you know, the ar- the artificial separation created by skin. I thought that was good. Um, but um, we need each other in order to uh, do this grand project of waking up and coming to love everyone and serve everyone. So um, I've been engaging really diverse people in conversations about what's helping them wake up and then what they can share with the rest of us. And today um, I have here uh, two wonderful people. Um, Bill Duane blends um, 12 years at Google and 10 years of consulting and everywhere in healthcare, manufacturing, finance, media, neuroscience, um, team effectiveness, mindfulness. He's writing a book on innovation now. Um, And we first knew each other at Google. Um, And I started there in 2007 or 8, which now is really ancient history, especially in tech time, Um, when I was working with uh, Meng, Jade Meng Tan, and Norman Fisher to develop this um, program we called Search Inside Yourself. It was Google's mindfulness-based emotional intelligence uh, program that many, many people at Google um, uh, took, went through, learned from. Um, So we met then and loved each other. And now he's working with um, Lisa Solomonova at, I love this, the Center for in the Center for the Study of Apparent Selves, which is anchored in Kathmandu. Uh, And they're asking questions like, can beings aware, can being aware of the illusion of self augment an agent's affordances? Um, A word I wasn't comfortable, didn't, don't usually use. So it means the quality or property of an object that defines its possible uses or makes clear how it can or should be used. So becoming aware of um, the illusion of self, um, can it augment an agent's affordances? And then the subtitle is Integrating Buddhist Philosophy, Cognitive Science, and Artificial Life. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Lisa teaches in the Department of Psychiatry at McGill. And um, and <laughs> we're going to talk about, we started the conversation saying um, uh, people are really interested in compassion and AI. and um, Oh, one thing that made a lot of sense in early conversations to me is about why Buddhism and, and um, AI, that to design minds, you have to understand your own. And the Buddhist practices that I've been doing for many years have been such a direct route to, in as much as I do, understanding my own mind. So um, I was very interested in this. So let's start with Bill. Would you define AI? Most people think of robots or Siri or Alexa or just functions like visual recognition or, or something I came upon online, robots as therapists. 
how people like them, and many people prefer them to humans as therapists. Oh, my God. Um, and so tell us, what are we really talking about when we talk about AI? Well, I think, uh, first of all, thank you for, for having me. I, I loved the, uh, the introduction, and it feels like it would, it would not be appropriate to start without uh, an expression of gratitude, you know, the way that you framed this conversation as helping each other walk paths um, this path and this conversation and my involvement with Lisa and the center um, and all this work and even most of my practice can be traced back to my exposure to uh, these practices uh, in Search Inside Yourself and uh, MBSR. Um, so without a doubt, without you, I would not be sitting in these chairs thinking <laughs> these That's thoughts. That's great. <laughs> um, so I really want to start off with an expression of, uh, of, uh, of gratitude. Um, and so I think, I think the reason why it's important to define AI is, uh, you know, in, in popular discourse, when we talk about AI, we're talking about a lot of really different things. And I think it's important to have a little bit of specificity. So I'll offer some comparisons of different things we mean when we talk about AI that might be supportive of this conversation. Um, so generally, when we talk about AI, we think about either, if you're the optimistic sort, the Star Trek computer, um, <laughs> or if you're the pessimistic sort, um, Skynet from the Terminator movies, uh, some highly advanced uh, technology that thinks and can interact with us in substantially similar ways that we would uh, interact with another uh, conscious being. Um, and really notably is we are not there yet. There's, there's even quite a bit of argument about uh, what would the path towards that look like, although things are moving very quickly. So it's important to note that when we think about that sort of entity, that sort of machine, it, it doesn't exist yet. And there's a lot of people working very hard to sort of head in that direction. Um, what we are seeing are these huge leap forwards in um, machine learning or neural networks, different names for it, also called AI. Uh, but the nature of these is generally quite limited. They're, they're, they're quite good at specific tasks like winning Jeopardy or driving a car or identifying photographs or um, identifying uh, tumors uh, on, um, on radiography. Um, but there, it's quite it's quite narrow. It's quite siloed, uh, even though it's it's very interesting and amazing. And then I think a lot of these conversations, particularly around ethics and intention, also come to, uh, you know, we, we might retroactively call things like the Google search engine um, AI, um, even though it's probably more properly viewed as, uh, as algorithms. So um, I just wanted to, to note that we're really talking about the way things exist now, but even more, we're leaning toward into this space that doesn't exist yet. So therefore, there's lots of um, uncertainty and unknowns about it. But um, uh, all of us at the center think it's really important to think through ahead of time what that might be like. One is so that we can, the outcomes are in line with what we want. And two is so that we as humans can really have this, um, this knowledge about what's it like to think about beings that may have a different sensorium. Mm. Hmm. <laughs> um, well, um, yeah, I, I, I would, so the two things we're talking about are AI and compassion. And I would simply say that compassion is, as a Buddhist understanding, the ability to empathize with um, another person's suffering. Um, and within that is the desire or impulse to relieve that suffering. So is that a good working definition for compassion for this conversation or? Yeah, I, I, I suppose, I mean, for me, this is a, this is an aspirational project, right? Mm -hmm. So I am a, I'm a cognitive scientist. I'm a neuroscientist. So uh, a lot of work that I do right now has to do with theory of mind and empathy um, and potentially compassion. So just as we don't have a very good compassion and uh, compassion model in science, uh, it just, it's only natural to turn to other traditions like Buddhism, which does have 
complex, systematic, uh, you know, practical ways to generating certain kind of things. And and for me, this is this project is is aspirational, and it's also kind of looping back into understanding of of our own minds, mm. you know, by by designing a sort of minds. And I and I think it's a very kind of curious and interesting challenge to to integrate Buddhist philosophy into the potential, you know, what what kind of artificial artificial beings can we can we design or can we um, embed within a certain kind of frameworks and taxonomies that come from Buddhist philosophy, because in some way, through Buddhist practices, that's what we do, right? We're trying to redesign our own minds uh, <laughs> now with, with certain forms of aspirations. Mm, true. Take yeah. Them as, yeah, we take them as they are. We, we, we're using, we're engaging the perceptual, the sensory capacities that our minds already possess. However, we're trying to make them into something else. So in a way, it's kind of an interesting um, you know, empirical question and uh, just a curious challenge as we design the minds that are sort of like ours, uh, but also using insights from traditions that explicitly are uh, focusing on redesigning our own minds. Like, what, what, what kind of beings could those be? And um, and in this and in this sense, um, looking kind of like narrowing narrowing down a little bit our our search in terms of looking at maybe things such as you know, um, the idea of no self or collective selves, right? Or selves not being, not being, uh, entirely, uh, just delim- delimited by our own brains and our own bodies. Right. And, and this idea is, this idea is very prominent in, in Buddhist philosophy also, you know, have their own kind of, um, mirror images and in, in Western philosophy, particularly in phenomenology, right? And the in theories of embodied cognition and collective intentionality. So there's a lot of things to look at. Uh, certainly, you know, cognitive science is now more and more recognizing the kind of social, the interactive, uh, interpersonal nature of, of minds. Yeah. So, you know, going from one body to many bodies, but may, then maybe many bodies into a more ecological view, you know, in terms of other forms of life, right? Um, and this is there's a lot of interest right now, certainly um, in in philosophy, but also in, in cognitive science and in um, and in humanity is looking at also non human worlds. Uh, and so, can we sort of playfully, empirically push it a little further into non human worlds that also kind of exist because of us, <laughs> not just the ones that exist uh, despite of us? Mm. Yes, <laughs> to all of that, and um, I. I really like thinking about designing our minds. I mean, in the Buddhist practices, you know, um, when when I learned them and when I teach them, you know, they're the practices observing your mind just as it is, right? Uh, and then there's that other set of practices for cultivating compassion and loving kindness. And, and um, sometimes, you know, there'll be pushback from students who are saying, I thought we were just supposed to see things as they are. Why are we trying to change things, you know? And then there's always the conversation about that, you know, you can um, increase your compassion. You can, you know, uh, deepen your loving kindness. Um, so, but I love the idea of designing our own minds. That's really good because that's what it is. It's great. Um, uh, let's see. There's so much. Um, so for AI to effectively support us humans and drive us toward a more meaningful existence. Um, it AI has to be designed with compassion at its core. Not, I mean, compassion in the designing of it, but also compassion built into that. How, how I don't know if you're at that level yet, but and of course, I won't understand it really technically, but how do you do that? How do you build compassion into um, non-human beings? Well, we're, we're taking a swing at it. And, um, you know, it's important to note that I think we all hold a lot of this work as translation work, 
because we believe that there are concepts in Buddhism that are relevant to AI and vice versa, but they just sail right past each other because <laughs> they seem like they're radically un unrelated. And you bring up an important point of, you know, what would compassion, as Lisa described it, look like in a non-organic entity? And then your question is then how do you train it? So we're we're currently in the middle of an interesting translation exercise to look at aspects of biology and evolution that then may inform a strategy. And one of the things that we're doing is when we're looking at suffering, you know, one of the one of the translations of dukkha is stress. And it's actually one I like a lot more than mm. suffering mm. because it covers a lot more subtle yeah. um, areas. Uh, and so in biology, you know, stress is you don't have what you think you need, right? This idea of homeostasis uh, yeah. of, you know, even at its most simple level, uh, uh, a cell seeks the right kind of pH, the right temperature, the right sort of nutrients and environment for it to survive. And to the extent that those aren't, it exerts uh, effort and forces to get there, right? And so, um, you know, we can we can look at this universal drive towards reaching this homeostasis. Um, and for me, <laughs> you know, I think about my own practice and my own uh, issues, and I think, you know, for me, it's, you know, am I am I choosing strategies that actually address the root cause? or something, right? And so Buddhism, I think, has a has a lot to say at it. So by adopting this idea of, of um, all creatures feel the need to reach homeostasis, and there's more or less successful ways of going about it, that's kind of a bridge from all of this wonderful work in the biological world about how entities evolve towards that, and also how they do that at different levels of organizations. We can talk about this drive from the cellular level, we can talk about it from an individual, making air quotes, level, and also talk about it from a group or a society level, you know. Um, so the question is then, how do you train that? And the one of the key things we're looking at is that if you, you know, what's called a local optimization, if you're trying to solve for I, me, mine, you can come up with a solution that may end up being harmful in the medium or the long term either to the environment that you're in or the individual. Uh -huh. So if we could train a being, being human or, or, or sorry, organic or non-organic, to cast its view of what do I care about to be wider and therefore would view the impacts of its decisions as not, well, I'm helping myself but hurting others, but if you expand that circle of care a little bit, then you say, well, I'm hurting myself, which speaks to, you know, the Dalai Lama's point of, uh, you know, being kind is just an enlightened form of selfishness. Mm -hmm. right? yeah, yeah. You're taking care of, your, of yourself. So what we're thinking about is that how might we increase the perception and intention of a being so that that circle is wider and therefore it pursues strategies of alleviating stress um, that's more of a, a global optimization versus local. And so uh, even though it seems a little tortured to talk about it in those, you know, nerd terms, mm. we're then hopefully creating a bridge by which we can look at all of these things from evolutionary biology. Um, and of course, one of the interesting things about uh, code and computers is that you can collapse many, many different generations quickly. So we can actually test these amongst what in human terms would be 10,000 lifetimes and have that yeah. chunk through in a fairly short amount of time. Mm. That's really helpful to hear. I mean, when with my simple first response of, you know, when, one of the ways that we train um, or uh, compassion in people is to have them do the just like me practice where, you know, you're looking at another person or you bring somebody to mind and you recognize that uh, just like me, this person suffers and doesn't want to suffer, wants to be happy. Um, and uh, so anything I can do to relieve that suffering because this person's just like me. But yeah, so like how how you teach um, an artificial intelligence 
to that that humans would be just like me, just like what what pronouns do you use for AI? <laughs> they, no doubt. <laughs> um, yeah, it's all kind of. <laughs> I love it because it just expands the mind so wide, um, so much wider than most things. That most things I come across in my life, I can, with a little study, I can understand them. You know, um, but uh, this is so great because you really have to open your mind very wide to think about it. Um, so, um, let's see. Lisa, I saw that at that Center for the Study of Apparent Selves, which I love, you are taking these most foundational teachings of, of Buddhism, impermanence, dependent origination, interconnection of all life, and asking about their connection or value for AI. That's what we've been saying. But can, like, could AI understand cause and effect, which is so essential to understanding these other concepts? Well, I, I'm not so certain if humans are very good at understanding <laughs> either. <laughs> Great. So, so, I mean, I guess I'm both optimistic and also <laughs> kind of like, well, <laughs> we'll see, I guess. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, some of, the, some of the interest here is really kind of taking... Just, just kind of figuring out um, a way to talk about such things as, for example, selfhood, right? So, you know, um, what would it be like to to design a being that from the that doesn't have to unlearn the kind of um, individualistic mm. or know, very, very kind of uh, knee-jerk reaction, you know, view of oneself, but 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 right away perhaps sees themselves as part of as part of more than one thing, right? Uh, it's again, it's an empirical question to me. To me personally, this this the center and this and this project is really, you know, we're trying to kind of envision envision something novel, but also while envisioning it, we're basically doing an experiment on our own thinking, right? We're using our thinking to conduct mm-hmm. experiments, but then we're also experimenting, you know, with the limits of our own our own theories. Um, and so, um, so yeah. So in terms of how does how does one recognize cause and effect? Well, there's you know there's there's advanced uh, specific techniques and things like machine learning, right? There's a lot of various forms of simulation, but but to me personally, what is really interesting is to see um, is to see what happens if, if from the outset a system is designed using specific uh, kinds of principles in mind, such as, for example, you know, um, you know, we are trying to work with the idea that intelligence, and in this case, you know, artificial intelligence uh, can be can be basically understood as forms of care, right? And mm-hmm. and those those forms of care, you know, the idea of that that you mentioned before of compassion, this is this is like the higher level understanding of you know the compassion is higher level understanding of care. And we're mm-hmm. trying to kind of work it up from like simple things, like just you know maybe affective non indifference to oneself first, right? Like uh, so simple. organisms don't want to die. Right? <laughs> yeah. Don't like being stressed. Mm-hmm. Don't like being hurt. Right? It doesn't mean that they have any other forms of care, but at the very least, they have some kind of. It's they 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 kind of bothered, you know, by the idea of their own mortality. All right, great. So moving up from there, moving up from there, what happens was when an organism is bothered by the idea of mortality of other organisms, just like itself, right? And then, then you can start thinking about, you know, other forms of care, such as, let's say, of course, we're using metaphors, right? And, and in a way, we're using this Buddhist terms as metaphors, right? Uh, and certainly, I my role in the project is to is to bring in perspectives from cognitive science, neuroscience, ecology. So certainly, 
when a being starts starts caring about other beings, you can think about, you know, animals and the offspring, right? What happens? Like what happens when 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 one develops form of care for their for their little ones, right? And then, of course, then that also feeds back into the very basic ideas of like, okay, but is it even possible for a being that is embedded in the social world of, let's say, its own species, is it possible for that being to even ever conceive of oneself as being separate? This idea of becoming, um, well, either of you could answer this, this idea of becoming a bodhisattva agent. That, and I think you said much of our current thinking focuses on the notion of a bodhisattva agent, a hypothesized artificial agent <laughs> that evolves toward optimal cooperative behavior based on recognizing the shifting and at times uh, unintuitive nature of beings and their contexts. So what about that and how, what would it look like in a bodhisattva agent? I know, Bill, you talked to me about this when we first started talking about all of this. Yeah, I'll start and then Lisa can, uh, can correct and, uh, and uh, add on uh, from there. So earlier we were speaking about what is care and compassion and how might that show up in different contexts, in a human context, in a non-human context. And we talked about this idea of... Um, expanding your scope of what you care about. You know, Lisa before when she was talking was um, talking about shifting from an individual to a community standpoint and looping back to the very beginning of the podcast, you know, is that question is, does that give us affordances? Does that actually improve our ability to come up with, with solutions? So, um, you know, one of the ways that one can study this is via artificial life, where you actually code a universe with a set of rules for survival and sustenance, and then different beings within it that operate according to some code or heuristics. So, for instance, one of our colleagues, Olaf Watowski, did one that showed that um, cooperation can actually emerge in these populations without being explicitly programmed. So when huh. we talk about an AI agent, we're talking about sort of a, a construct that exists within uh, one of the phrases that I've heard in the artificial life uh, sphere is called a toy universe. Uh -huh. um, so when we were thinking about that concept combined with some of the things from the earlier conversation, we thought, well, you know, one of the ways of expanding care in the Buddhist traditions is this notion in the Adriana Mahayana traditions of the, of the Bodhisattva vow. And the bodhisattva vow is, it's infinite. It sets, it's a vow of setting the intention well beyond your sensorium. Beings are mm -hmm. endless. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. And so, you I know, like it. the nerd yeah. rationalist part of me, I've always felt grumpy about that. Being like, it doesn't make any sense. But if you think about it from this perspective, it is an intentional setting of intention beyond your own sensorium beyond your own current ability to influence things. So there's that idea of setting the vow. Our curiosity is if we were to program one of these AI agents to expand its, its, its care infinitely, and then some sort of training regimen to have its actions match its intentions in each generation a little bit more and a little bit more, could we think of that as a, as a bodhisattva agent? And then one of the nice things about this idea of toy universes is you can let that run for 10,000 generations. Does that create um, an entire universe of bodhisattva beings? And wow. what are sort of the things that encourage it or discourage it? What works? What, what doesn't work? And then if we want to get sassy, we can also have uh, in, in, in computer science, there's this idea of an antagonist load. So if you want to run a system, you run the software on the system. But of course, real life means that other things are going on too. So you might have another separate system trying to get at those resources too, called an antagonistic load. So that got me thinking, like, maybe we have a Mara agent in there too and see how they slug it out. Um, 
and to see how, uh, you know, just, just for us to have a feel mm-hmm. of it. Again, this is an abstraction. This is a toy universe. It's a radical oversimplification. But might that then tease out things that are important and that work? And then even though we're talking about a toy universe, I have this idea of almost like a porthole in it where humans could watch and learn from it. And mm. certainly one of the things that I think is the most intellectually interesting, but also in terms of my my own heart and my own practice is thinking about the issues of like, okay, if we if we think about the concept of compassion or karuna described in the in the suttas as the, the quiver of the heart mm-hmm. in relationship to uh, suffering, well, okay, but what if you didn't literally have a heart? And of course, you know, the heart is a metaphor for our emotional yeah. state. What would it be like if you didn't see with your eyes or feel with your skin or as Lisa was pointing to before, where your sense of self didn't stop at your skin? What if your primary drives in, in, rela- in, in relation to suffering weren't fight, flight, freeze? What if a being had a different set of real basic mm-hmm. survival heuristics? Just even watching that, what could we learn about our own? It reminds me of, you know, Oliver Sacks' work where we only learn about how our mind works when part of it breaks and it breaks in ways that are really interesting, that highlight things that are so much a feature of our of our lives and our awareness that we don't notice them or like fish in water. So for me, thinking about how might this be for machines, uh, I've found it really deeply um, challenging in the good way from my own practice standpoint. Mm. Well, hmm. help me with this. The Bodhisattva vow, which is essentially uh, suffering is boundless, limitless. I vow to end it. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. As you were saying, it's beyond what we could possibly do, but we take that vow. Um, knowing that and at the same time working as if we could. Um, but the, um, the, the work, the spiritual work to be able to do that is to come to, is to do all the um, practices to come into full realization, right? Wisdom and compassion so that you then, uh, could bring that to the work of saving all beings from suffering. So, when you're um, looking at an artificial intelligence who now knows and can hold that um, beings are numberless and nevertheless, <laughs> I'm going to relieve suffering for all of them. But how does the um, how does the wisdom that um, we humans have to work so hard to cultivate and realize how does that get into the um, into the artificial intelligence? I don't know if that's the right verbs to use, but. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's exactly it. That's exactly the challenge. I I find it um, I find it uh, very interesting and, and playful to have this like paradoxical aspirational AI that knows that it's never going to be able to do what it vows to do. Right? It's like like a bodhisattva vow. Like you know, it's just not going to happen. It's an it's a poetic aspiration. It's a form of orientation towards towards the world. You know, like we're not actually going to. Well, I mean. It's been a running joke in our in our group that uh, I'm a bad Buddhist because you know because I I think I I I can't actualize my Bodhisattva vow <laughs> but <laughs> but I kind of feel like I probably won't. <laughs> um, I know the bad but, Buddhist. But the, yeah, that could be a bad. character in something. <laughs> yeah, that's other yes, than I, life. I, I yeah, fully. <laughs> Fully embrace the the, the bad the bad Buddhist uh, <laughs> uh, view of myself, but uh, yeah. So the aspirational kind of AI, but also just even even less aspirational kind of going back to the idea of wisdom, right? Like the this is like this is something that one might might envision in in sort of you know the, the general AI design in the sense that uh, you know at the very minimum. Um, 
it will have to do with the idea of what counts as good outcome, right? Like when when a system has a problem to solve, you know, let's say, you know, with time and computational capacities, more and more information can be taken into consideration at a time, right? Um, so just just yesterday I had a conversation about this with, with a good friend of mine, kind of like trying to figure out like what would it look like, right? And and we and we were thinking about all sorts of paradoxical scenarios, like for example, Google Maps, okay. Like uh, right now, the idea is you gotta get faster to where you're going. It seems very straightforward, right? All right, that's that, that's great. You know, take into account traffic, weather, fine. That's that's great. However, what about uh, a situation where an AI would realize that sitting in traffic is good for you? It's gonna make you slow down. You're gonna have more conversations with your family while you're in the car on the way to school. You know, will that will that then result in in the <laughs> in the compassionate AI letting us sit in traffic for longer? Or maybe sitting in traffic is great because we're gonna get increasingly frustrated and abandon cars and get you know get on bikes. <laughs> that is that is that you know because mm-hmm. when we started this conversation, you referred to this paper we're trying to write about augmenting affordances, and the idea of affordances comes from. Um, what's the domain is known as ecological psychology. And, and the idea is that the, the objects and things in the world, they call out for our attention, right? And that's, that's based on, our, on the way that our bodies and mind are developed, you know, through, throughout our history, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, very kind of simple ways, chairs are for sitting, cups are for drinking, right? Because they're designed in a certain way, we recognize that our bodies are attuned to those things, right? Tree maybe for climbing, like tree for swimming, uh, etc. And of course, you know, these affordances are physical, but they also, you know, they're also cultural, right? You know, a chair is for sitting, but the throne is for sitting, but maybe not for you. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, a door is for opening, but the door that says, you know, um, the Dean of McGill maybe is not for me, right? So it's like we, we, we learn more complex forms of affordances. They become also, you know, cultural, contextual, uh, you know, maybe the throne is for sitting when nobody's looking, you know. <laughs> uh, so, in other words, we're always in some kind of conversation with ourselves, mm-hmm. with the way that we're enculturated in, in the world, not only on physical level, but also on, you know, on, again, more than one person, right, level. Um, and so, and so, yeah, so, so, so the idea here, the kind of challenge was that, okay, well, if, if the idea of no self is, or at least, you know, no soul itself or no, you know, mm-hmm. no constantly unchanging self is so central and so important in Buddhism. And it's, it's pretty important in, you know, developmental psychology yeah. and cognitive science, neuroscience, et cetera. Um, if those ideas are really, you know, pointing to something fundamental about what, what, what human mind is and what it can be, um, how can we then... Um, like what would happen if 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 an artificial system would kind of come to that realization faster? And then what kind of outcome, what kind of, you know, what, what kind of information, as you're mentioning in the idea of wisdom, would be counted as desirable outcome? You know, is it really just about getting getting to work faster? Or maybe the system takes into account like mm. the idea, oh, you know, the faster people get to work, the more hours they spend work, the faster they burn out, the less time they have to, I don't know, listen to your podcast, no matter uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, uh, that makes me think. So uh, uh, a dear friend of mine is an artist. I'm an engineer. When we're walking from point A to point B, I would be like, well, let's go this way. And she would say, well, I think we should go this way. I'd be like, well, and she, she'd been hanging around with Google engineers long enough. She was said, pray tell, in which way is your way more optimal? And I said, it's shorter. And she would say, mine's prettier. <laughs> right. And, you know, it was uh, it was great fun. And it speaks to what Lisa was was pointing to is this question of what are you optimizing for? Yeah. So part of the reason why we we enjoy doing this work and we hope that it might be useful and important is a lot of these systems right now, what are they optimizing for is something that's that's fairly narrow and specific and generally uh, driven by concerns around time to market those kinds of things. And, you know, that's that, that's a powerful draw. It's a powerful sense of energy that propels things, uh, propels action. Um, but going back to the idea of the Bodhisattva AI vow, so, you know, we have this idea that people are, are creating these narrow sets of what does optimal mean in order to move quickly 
But that results in all of these unintended consequences, perhaps echoing back to your questions before around karma or unintended consequences. So we believe that even though it invites more complexity in the short term, widening the scope of care and concern um, actually leads to these global outcomes and therefore could actually be a form of, of hyper-intelligence. And just to echo back to the very beginning, we're now starting to describe the qualities of something that doesn't exist yet. So there's a lot of uh, hypotheticals going on, but we think this idea of increasing that, that, that sense of care is actually an affordance. It would actually help, although in the short term, it's complicated, right? Most of these people are choosing a narrow definition of what does optimal need because it's faster. We hope that it's a forcing function, that it's, it's a forcing function if you cast the net wider of care and concern, that that will actually lead to hyperintelligence because you'll come up with better solutions. Uh, because uh, if, if you just, you know, it's almost like, manufacturing and uh, pollution. If you just say, well, if we put it in the river, it's not our problem. <laughs> well, you can <laughs> make things a lot easier, a lot less complicated, but then also sets things up for being a self-limiting uh, situation. That's great. I mean, just that, just that question, what am I optimizing for? I mean, we could use that many times every day and learn from it. You know, it just stops you to think. I mean, it's basically what are your values, but it's better for kind of everyday things like why are you choosing that route home? Uh, that's really good. I mean, we have a few minutes left, but uh, what else about this mix of of compassion and AI or Buddhism and, and AI that um, since you've both been thinking about it so much, um, I don't know. What else do you think would be illuminating for like our everyday lives right now? Like I loved that question. What are you optimizing for? Um, and I love that, you know, the idea that yes, we can hold the truth that we can't save all beings but actually, that could really be um, programmed in, I don't, you know, in, into artificial intelligence where um, uh, that could be a, say, a, a driver or a, you know, just a, um, an, uh, an affordance. I wanted to remember that word. But do you have any kind of last-minute thoughts about other things like that? You're immersed all the time. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's I think that's exactly it, that this is like this is a thought experiment and potentially a real experiment also. Uh, you know, the kind of paradoxical intention and also paradoxical importance. I mean, I think one thing that potentially the Bodhisattva vow does for us bad Buddhists like myself. It kind of keeps us humble, you know. <laughs> like it's just I kind of know I'm fail, right? It mm -hmm. keeps me in check. It keeps me in check, you know. It keeps yeah. me, it keeps me in check. It keeps me kind of like on the lookout. Well, maybe I'm wrong, you know. Maybe yes, this is yes. not the way because I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I know I'm not gonna, I'm probably not gonna do it, and I'm, you know, of course. You know, the danger here is to is to fall into some kind of nihilism and you know constant self doubt, but also it doesn't have to be that way, right? So, so having an so having an, an artificial system that that kind of you know potentially checks itself for for various values is one thing, right? And that's also knows that it's it's not you know it's not independent of other things. That's already kind of interesting anyway. And and certainly just like figuring out various different sort of values, right? Like what's like what kind of what kind of Kind of productivity value is 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 interesting in, in this in this sense, you know, is it getting there faster? Is it getting there with more beauty? Right? Like there's mm -hmm. there's there's a variety there's a variety of things that that we might think of as as values, and certainly in contemplative practice, and also in just general cultural human life. Right? It's it's often not about the fastest or the or the most efficient or even or even the best. You know, we often make decisions that seem very counterintuitive because they respond to some other needs. Mm -hmm. 
So can you have can you have an artificial system that is open to other needs, you know, and it is, mm-hmm. that is potentially, you know, keeping itself in check and having this, you know, the idea of care, but also not necessarily knowing better. I think for me, this is this is these are all very very interesting questions, um, and uh, you know, uh, looking at looking at the potential of designing other minds while we try to design our own in itself in itself is an interesting kind of exercise, right? Um, yes. So yeah, using 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 certain certain kind of longstanding Buddhist ideas as as some guiding metaphors, I think I think could be really illuminating in that sense. Mm. Yeah, they, the whole process you've been describing is. Um, I spend a lot of time with people in higher ed talking about what contemplative knowing is. Arthur Zions, physicist, uh, wrote a book on contemplative knowing and how unlike um, uh, um, critical thinking, rational thinking, where you put the object separate from you so that you see it for what it is and you're not contaminating the view by being involved in it. Um, In contemplative knowing, you bring whatever it is, an idea or a person or an object, um, as close as you can. It, It becomes intimate. And you know it in a different way. You know it in a contemplative way and a more holistic way. Um, And by learning about uh, the ways in which artificial intelligence could hold compassion, you're looking into your own mind to discover the nature of that. That's really um, powerful and beautiful. I think. Yeah, and yeah. and one one other thing just just came to mind in terms of you know what we can how we can apply it to to our own lives is like uh, you know the uh, classical academic joke uh, you know have you read this book I was like well no I haven't even taught it yet <laughs> <laughs> so 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 you know uh, and this That's is an exercise great. right this is mm-hmm. an exercise that yeah. we often give students like if you want to understand something try to teach it. Yes. Yes. So, mm-hmm. so if we if we want to like again like me, I'm I'm fundamentally a human scientist, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm fundamentally interested in understanding humans. But for me, then the kind of amazing challenge is okay. Well, great. Like we're talking about stuff like you know, sense of self or agency or compassion or wisdom or notions that have their own cultural meanings within my own life. But you know, try try to explain it to a machine, and maybe then I'll explain it better to myself, right? In terms of my yeah. academic work, but also my human life. <laughs> yeah, that's great, Arthur. In talking about how this kind of knowing involves bringing things very close, um, called it the epistemology of love. Mm. I was at an academic conference when he first used that phrase. It was at Columbia, and the whole place all. Everybody stood up and roared with applause. I said, this is the first example of the epistemologist as a rock star because <laughs> he called it the epistemology of love. So that's what you're talking about. Bill, do you have any last things you'd like to add to all this great jewel? I think the epistemology of love is just too good a note to not end on. <laughs> I feel like whatever I say, it would just be like, yeah, that was interesting, I guess. But yeah, just sort of full full stop of what do we mean? You know, just to echo Liza's thoughts, what do we what do we mean when we say care? What do we mean when we say mm-hmm. uh, action directed towards care? Um, and so in you know, the translation of it from organic to non-organic beings and the non-organic beings are evolving at such a clip that even though they're not there yet, it's likely, mm-hmm. maybe not likely, but possible within within a lifetime or so that, that they would be. And so I just think these are important questions to answer, not only from a defensive standpoint, um, but, you know, to, uh, to, to, to presence our, our colleague Olaf, you know, if, if a machine doesn't have its sense of self stopping at the skin like ours does biologically, just based on our sensorium, but may, I'm sure there are lots of things that humans are going to end up being better at, you know, uh, 
talking about what what Lisa said about the idea of communities and there's no such thing as a baby. What if a hundred years from now people say there's no such thing as a human, right? Because the humans need to exist in their ecology. And what if that ecology includes mm-hmm. other beings that can augment, uh, you know, just to, you know, it's, it's, it, it feels a little vulnerable to be optimistic in that, you know, and I think it's important to not be naive about it. Um, but I do think there's a possibility of an augmentation where these where different types of conscious beings can inform each other. Mm. That's great. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I, I one time was uh, at something in New York with uh, Gellick Rinpoche, great Tibetan teacher, who's gone now. And um, some, I can't remember who it was, but anyhow, he'd just written a best-selling tech science book. And um, they were talking about a reincarnation and artificial intelligence machines, they were calling them then. So this um, uh, scientist said to, uh, Gallic was talking about what he thought, you, um, whether you could come back as a machine as a computer. Um, and uh, he was saying, well, it would be the consciousness of, you know. Um, and so this person said, um, you mean I could come back as a computer? And he said, well, if anybody's going to, it'll be you. <laughs> I think I think that guy spent the rest of his career trying to figure that one out. But that'd be a good thing to talk about sometime with Buddhism and and AI. So I hope I come back and and am able to witness some of the things that you guys are um, imagining. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you both. Really, this was thank you, thank really you, very wonderful. Much. It was for me, and I'm sure it will be for others who listen. I just know. So thank you, and I'll be in touch soon. Take care. Thank Bye. you.